When people recognize that exercise is powerful for mental health, that can help people build communities, when you recognize that physical sensations like fatigue or exertion, that you're sweating, studies show that when people interpret those physical sensations as, I'm amazing, I'm doing this hard thing, I'm tough, or um, this is evidence that my heart is getting stronger, and this is part of how I get braver in the world. This is how I train myself to show up in the world. When people are able to make those sort of appraisals of what you otherwise could just be like, this is hard, I don't like this, I'm out of shape, that it makes people enjoy movement more, it increases their positive memories of it, it changes the stories that they tell about themselves, not related to exercise, but about you know their capacity to endure or to engage with life. You're listening to Kelly McGonigal on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Small behaviors can make a big difference in our health and well-being. Most of us work so many hours each week that we should think about how our work habits affect our bodies. Being able to stand sometimes while I work has made a huge difference for me. Uplift Desks has created high-quality office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. My Uplift Standing Desk allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me recharge to change positions when I get tired in the afternoon. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash P-O-T-C for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC. ZocDoc.com POTC. 
Hey everyone, it's Jill here, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode today where I interviewed Dr. Kelly McGonigal about her new book, The Joy of Movement. And I think this episode is more timely than ever where we're all kind of stuck in our homes and it might be difficult to find new and creative ways to move. So I think it's a great time to talk about this. And I'm here with Diana, and I'm curious about your thoughts. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think there's people that are in two different camps. There's people that maybe are exercisers and their classes are canceled and they can't get to their gym or they are used to going to their dance class and they're feeling a lot of loss around their movement. And then there's people that maybe haven't been moving and they're like, well, why start now? I'm stuck inside, right? And what I think Kelly offers in this episode is sort of these ideas around not only why movement is so essential for your immune system and for your mental health, but also that it doesn't have to be so structured in that way. And we can get really creative about it. And then I'm curious if there's ways that you've gotten more creative with, with movement, Joe. Yeah, I have. And it's funny because I'm lucky to have a treadmill in my garage, but funnily enough, I have not been using my treadmill because it's hard to do that with kids being home, of course. But what we've been doing is heading out in our backyard, even though it's tiny, playing some catch. My daughter plays softball. She's seven and softball's been canceled. So we've been playing softball. And my son and I recently took my French bulldog for a walk. And we don't usually walk with him because he's a Frenchie and he gets really tired. So he was very confused trying to get into every car, (laughs) thinking that we were going to the vet because that's the only time we ever put his leash and his collar on. So my son and I both got some sun and some fresh air and a lot of giggles in addition to movement. And I I love the way Kelly talks about how movement can bond people, not just about getting exercise. I think some of us feel like your French bulldog right now where we're like, trying to get in the car. We're trying to go about our life the way we usually do, but it's not happening that way. <laughs> everything is everything is different. We're trying to figure out how to do this. And a lot of it is actually moving to online. Zoom is blowing up. I just had a client today talking about Zoom, making uh, dinner meetings with people over Zoom where they're eating together in groups, right, for a dinner party. And I actually think that that's a place where movement can happen as well. One of my um, favorite yoga studios on the East Coast that I, I never get to go to, shout out to Kaya Yoga, just put all of their yoga classes online. So I'm going to go do a yoga class in um, Greenwich tomorrow morning. And there's we got to think outside of the box because as Kelly shares brilliantly in this book, movement and movement together is part of our nature as a species. And we're, we're meant to move together in groups. It regulates our nervous system. It activates our immune system. It just makes you feel better. And we all could benefit from a little bit of that right now. Absolutely, without a doubt. So before we head into the episode, we here at Psychologists Off the Clock wanted to offer some resources that our listeners might find helpful. Yeah, you know, I think just as a reminder that a lot of therapists are offering their services online right now. If you need some mental health um, support, all three of us have practices that are online. Jill and I are both in California, Debbie is licensed in Colorado, and Yael is licensed in Massachusetts. And so you can work online with uh, therapists that are uh, in, in your state. I also wanted to talk about your book, Jill, because it's such a resource. It's all about stress and anxiety and using ACT principles, Be Mighty. That's a great book to pick up right now if you want to learn some strategies to help you out with your stress and anxiety during this time. And then, of course, for therapists. 
this is a great time to uh, dig into some of your online learning because right now you're being needed more than ever. And the Praxis has online training and continuing education for therapists. They offer uh, two types of high quality online training. One is live online courses and the other is on demand courses. And you can learn more about them from our website, click on the sponsorship page, and there's some discount codes there as well. Great. Well, thanks everyone and enjoy this episode with Dr. Kelly McGonigal. Hey everyone, it's Jill here and I am beyond thrilled to be interviewing the incredible Dr. Kelly McGonigal about her new book, The Joy of Movement. Kelly McGonigal is a health psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University who specializes in understanding the mind-body connection. As a pioneer in the field of science help, her mission is to translate insights from psychology and neuroscience into practical strategies that support personal well-being and strengthen communities. She is the best-selling author of The Willpower Instinct and The Upside of Stress. Through the Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism, she helped create Stanford Compassion Cultivation Training, a program now taught around the world that helps individuals strengthen their empathy, compassion, and self-compassion. You might know her from her TED Talk, How to Make Stress Your Friend, which is one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time with over 20 million views. Her new book, The Joy of Movement, explores why physical exercise is a powerful antidote to the modern epidemics of depression, anxiety, and loneliness. And if that's not enough, she's also passionate about animal rescue and adoption and is trained as a cat adoption counselor and matchmaker. So welcome, Kelly. I am so happy to have you here with us today on Psychologists Off the Clock. Thank you. And thank you for mentioning my favorite personal credential, the the cat matchmaker. Uh, <laughs> well, it's an important one. <laughs> I feel I feel like that's true. <laughs> well, let's talk about this book. I loved this book, The Joy of Movement. Um, and I will admit, I've always had what I would consider a slightly complicated relationship with exercise. So I wouldn't normally be drawn to a book about exercise. And I think that's probably because a lot of my exposure to movement has been authority figures sort of shaming me that this is something that I should be doing and that I'm bad if I'm not doing it. And what I loved so much about this book is that it is just the furthest thing from that. And it truly earns its title in being called the joy of movement. And you make the point that the joy of movement is not necessarily about fitness, but it's about the joy of movement, that it's simply in the moving. And so we'll talk much more about this idea, but to start in a totally different place, I'm really curious, you make it pretty clear in the beginning of the book that you have been a huge movement lover since you were a little girl. Um, I think you said you started working out to VHS tapes, which dates you a little bit. Yeah, uh, jazzercise, mid-80s. Yeah, jazzercise at age eight. Yeah, um, yeah early 80s, right. And and I believe, if I have this right, this is your sixth book, The Joy of Movement. Is that right? Um, it depends what you count. As a book, I have some books that are only available in non-English languages. Um, so I think I have four in the U.S. that are available. okay. Well, it's, <laughs> so bet- somewhere between four and six books. Yeah. Um, and so this is a question that therapists often ask clients when they first walk in: Why now? Like, why are you coming to therapy now? So why are you writing this book now? As opposed, like, why wasn't this your very first book? Given how passionate you clearly are about this topic. You know, every book that I have written has been because somebody else asked me to write it. So when I was first working 
um, in the field of yoga and people saw the work that I was doing with yoga practices to help with things like pain or, or stress. Um, somebody said, Hey, we see what you're doing. Can you write a book about it? So I did when I was teaching the science of willpower at Stanford and it was a super popular class and it started to get media attention, a very sexy topic, willpower. Somebody asked me to write a book or agents started calling and I said, okay, same thing with stress. I had that Ted talk. Um, this is the book I probably always would have wanted to start with. I actually can remember when I was a graduate student in psychology, I'm, I'm very like, so there are always two sides of my personality. I've been teaching um, group movement, yoga and dance and, and traditional fitness for 20 years. I started as a graduate student and actually while I was getting my PhD in psychology, I also was um, secretly doing the track in a master's in dance education through the dance department. My advisor did not even know that I was doing that. And I remember in <laughs> your one secret life. Yes. There were just two of us, two, two of us in this <laughs> class um, on uh, you know, strategies in dance education. I remember we were reading something about the relationship between emotions and movement. And I was being like super critical because it w really wasn't scientific. It really wasn't integrating what we know about the mind-body relationship from fields like psychology and anthropology and neuroscience. So I remember making some sort of, you know, young 22 year old snide comment. And, um, the instructor looked at me and said, I think one day you're going to write the book that like really gets at this topic. And it just sort of stuck with me. And I was like, oh yeah, sure. When I'm, you know, when I'm not busy doing my PhD research, but actually I feel like that's, that's true that this is the book that I've always wanted to write because movement has always been my favorite form of do-it-yourself therapy, I should say do-it-together therapy because I love group movement so much. Um, when you say that I have been a lover of movement since I was a little kid, some people might have a misperception thinking, oh, you know, doing sports, maybe you were like that fit kid or that kid who could, you know, do flips on the jungle gym bars. I was the kid who was in remedial gym class. I was the slowest runner. I was so clumsy. I've never played a team sport. So it's not that I was a love of mover in the sense that I had any athletic ability. I mean, I didn't learn how to do a cartwheel until I was in my 20s because it felt like some sort of milestone I should, like a, like a meaningful milestone to try to reach. Um, <laughs> but I was a lover of movement because despite feeling humiliated in gym class and on the playground, um, I, I found through moving to music, moving rhythmically, moving with intentionality, you know, like an instructor would say, you know, this bicep curl, feel your, feel your bicep, feel your muscle, that there is a sensation to it and that you were synchronizing with both the beat of the music and other people. Like that's the joy of those original aerobics and calisthenics tapes is we're all doing this together. And there's often a pop soundtrack in the background and in jazzercise, they would encourage you to sing along and it was ridiculous and it was wonderful. And that was how I found my joy of movement in that it gave me a way of being in my body that felt like I was a good version of myself rather than the humiliation of athletics. And, um, and also because I have a tendency towards anxiety, depression, and other mental health challenges, um, and growing up at a time when kids really were not, did not get help for that, um, movement and exercise became a way for me to deal with stress and anxiety very early on. So that's what, what it means for me to be in love with movement is that it's, it's part of how I take care of my mental health. And it also has given me tremendous access to, to literally to joy and to community. And thank wow. goodness I finally got to write the book. Yes. Well, nobody I mean, asked so me. Powerful. I showed up for myself and for right. community. Well, and I agree. I think it clearly is the book that you've always been meant to write, but things happen at the time that they're meant to happen, I think. 
Um, and those, I mean, those stories are so powerful and I'm so glad that you wrote the book. And I think, you know, I'd have to say one of your best talents as a writer is you have this ability to weave science, your own personal experience, the stories of other people you interview into this really compelling, um, cohesive narrative. And I learned a ton from reading this book and found the research incredibly fascinating, which is not an easy, you know, that there's, that's no mean feat to be able to make research interesting is not something that everyone is able to do. And some of the findings you discuss are the links between movement and not just joy, of course, that's in there. It's the joy of movement, but also the links between movement and human connection, hope, finding a sense of purpose, and even recovery from addiction. And there were there were even more in there, too. It was so interesting. And I'm curious, were, as you were doing the research for the book, were there any findings that surprised you or that you found particularly exciting or interesting? Yes. I'll, I'll, let me see if I can give you my top three. But I first I want to mention, since you're talking about how to communicate science, and I know that you know many of us are, are interested in sharing science with people um, you know, whom it might help. I actually teach a class on this at Stanford for graduate students, how to talk about their research, um, how to communicate it, why it's important, why it matters. And one of the things I always think about is that there are certain emotions that I think are intrinsically connected to scientific discovery that are contagious. And so when I'm looking for research, I'm looking for the research that gives me a feeling of wonder or awe, or as you said, surprise or common humanity, that sense of like, wow, I'm not the only one who's had this experience, um, mm-hmm. sometimes relief. So I feel like science can create these emotions. And so when I'm reading the literature, I'm looking for that scientific finding, that study design, uh, that like that turn of phrase that gives me a feeling of wonder or awe or surprise. And then I try to re- sort of capture that and how I explain it. So let me give you a few examples. Um, one of this is going to be a very recent, and it's almost like a very, it's a small finding, but it perfectly captures to me that emotion of surprise. So anyone who's ever worked out has probably heard people talk about lactic acid, that thing that accumulates as a, a metabolic byproduct of exercise, that you are using energy uh, and your muscles produce lactate and people blame it for the burn that you feel when you exercise. And so, you know, if you take an exercise class, some of these people will be like, you've got to flush that lactic acid out. Um, so there's this thing that has been blamed for muscle soreness. It's been, been called like a villain in the exercise world. And the latest research suggests that, first of all, it's a natural bypro- byproduct of exercise. It's part of how your body exercises and uses energy. So there's nothing wrong with it. And that when it travels through your bloodstream, after exercise, it actually can cross the blood-brain barrier. And in your brain, it acts to make your brain more resilient to stress. It has antidepressant. And this is, I don't even know if this is in the book. I think I like snuck it in in like a final edit. Like it's like half a sentence somewhere in there. Um, wow. But it's an antidepressant, anti-anxiety, um, metabolic byproduct of exercise. And like that's the kind of finding that I think it, it's almost like, What? This thing that I thought was just making me feel sore after a workout, it's almost like you can begin to link, even though lactate actually probably doesn't cause muscle soreness, but we all think it does. So imagine if when you're feeling tired or sore after a workout, instead of thinking like, I must be really out of shape or, you know, that was so hard that you actually start to link that sensation to, you know, if I worked out enough to have this feeling, that means my brain is being transformed by what I did as well. 
that that wow, that's, that that's lactate really cool. is making my brain more resilient to stress. So that's one example. Um, and that another, it reminds oh, me too of your your stress book and your stress TED talk where you talk about how the way we appraise stress impacts how much the stress impacts us. That it essentially mitigates the negative effects of stress when we appraise it in a positive way. And this reminds me of that. That think about the healing powers of appraising the difficult parts of movement in a different way. And the research that you cite allows us to do that. That's really cool. This is actually one of the interesting things. I I should also say with stress, um, I mean, just to be pragmatic about it, there's no amount of thinking about stress that can get rid of all of the harmful effects of chronic and traumatic stress. I always feel like that's a a super important caveat whenever anyone brings up um, that my work on stress. But the, the, the key thing about stress is we know that when you have a mindset that allows you to recognize the potential positive side effects of an experience or how something can bring out the good that's in you, can bring out your natural strengths. You understand that humans have a capacity to rise to a challenge, to learn and to grow, to connect with others. You know, the idea is that recognizing that capacity helps you harness it. And the same is very much true with your mindset towards exercise. When people Mm -hmm. recognize that exercise is powerful for mental health, that can help people build communities. When you recognize that physical sensations like fatigue or exertion, that you're sweating, that your heart is pounding, that you are becoming breathless and you have to take a break. Studies show that when people interpret those physical sensations as, I'm amazing, I'm doing this hard thing, I'm tough, or um, this is evidence that my heart is getting stronger and this is part of how I get braver in the world. This is how I train myself to show up in the world. Um, When people are able to make those sort of appraisals of what you otherwise could just be like, this is hard. I don't like this. I'm out of shape. Why does this have to feel this way? That it makes people enjoy movement more. It increases their positive memories of it. It changes the stories that they tell about themselves, not related to exercise, but about you know their capacity to endure or to engage with life. It brings out the good even more powerfully. So mm-hmm. I think that, that that idea of choosing to focus on movement is something that brings out the good in you as opposed to something that corrects what others or you judge about yourself, which is so often the mindset people bring to movement. I I don't even want to say it. I'm so tired of even like mimicking the sort of phrases that you hear in advertising or in, you know, unintentionally, you know, harmful exercise cueing in a gym. I'm not even, you know what I'm talking about, the stuff Mm -hmm. that people say. Yeah, 100%. And yeah. that and that mindset basically is is a huge obstacle to experiencing the joys and the mental health benefits of exercise. Yeah, it's certainly not motivating. And you know, you tell so many incredibly inspiring stories throughout the book about people who have overcome barriers and where exercise has been something that's made them feel powerful and like I can tackle anything, something that I didn't think that I could tackle in the past. And just reading it you know, reading that take on it rather than some of these other negative things you're talking about, which certainly has been my experience in the past, it motivated me so much, so much more to really want to be out there and find my movement and do it with other people. Has that translated into action? Have you moved since reading the book? 100%. So oh, really? I've, Good. I've I thought that moving. was actually, yeah. that was a risky question to ask you. I didn't want you to say, yeah, no, no, no. no. So, well, I'll, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you my story. You know, this, this is probably related to, well, one of the things I want to talk about is the obstacles that people face to doing this, right? So 
Um, like I'll actually, let me, let me quote you to you. So you say, quote, like highly addictive substances, regular exposure to exercise will over time teach the brain to like, want, and need it. End quote. And when I read that, I was thinking, yeah, that totally makes sense. But how do we get there? Right? Like sometimes starting is the hardest part or someone will make, you know, a new year's resolution and they're all excited and motivated to start, but then they peter out. Um, and that it can be difficult to get going. And so to, to go back and answer your question, this has always been a challenge for me. And the way that I was finally able to make movement a part of my life in a way that I really wanted it to be part of my life was to connect it to a true value of mine. And yes. I used to tell myself, oh, physical health, I want to be healthy. And it just wasn't doing the trick. I think it still sort of felt like a should. And I had this aha moment one morning where my whole family was together. We were sitting on the sofa and I just thought, oh my gosh, my children cannot grow up with two sedentary parents. I have a husband who looks amazing and looks like he exercises and eats well, but he's just genetically blessed (laughs) and does not exercise and eat well. And I thought, you know, they can't grow up with two sedentary parents. Someone has to model that movement is just a regular part of your life. And that's what it really took for it to click for me. Um, And so I have been moving for, that was maybe a year or so ago, but since reading the book, I've started to get more creative. Like instead of just being on my treadmill in my garage, which served an excellent purpose because when I had two little kids and taking three naps a day and didn't have time to, you know, go to the gym or take three hours to drive to a yoga class and work out for an hour and a half, it served a great purpose. And I love my treadmill. It's also where I read and prep for podcasts and feel like I'm killing two birds with one stone. But I've started getting outside. I've started bringing my five-year-old son and having him bring his scooter. And, you know, the joy of just watching him be outside moving makes me being outside moving so much more exciting. We go on hikes together and it is like everything is just awe and wonder for him. And that makes me experience it in a new way. Um, And all of that has really come. Did you like the stories in the book? I threw in a few stories here and there about um, parents and caregivers who are exercising with their children. And they're like all those magic moments. I think about like the father with his dance parties in his living room with his little girl and dancing in Target. Yes. And in Target. Yes. And he said, I don't care. Yeah. Yes. I love it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, So there's so many things in what you just said I want to highlight, but I want to, because I, I often feel like people who um, who are just coming to my work for the first time might have some misperceptions that I want to to clear up right away, which is um, sometimes people think that one of the barriers to movement is going to be the things that are barriers to physical movement in general, such as age, injuries, disabilities, neurological disorders, size. The things that, that, you know, if you were to think stereotypically who's somebody who loves to exercise and is quote unquote good at it, you might think of a young, stereotypically physically fit, thin, whatever kind of person. And um, as you know, from reading the book, I was very intentional about making the book, you know, 90% of the stories in the book are not people who would fit that stereotype, whether it's Mm -hmm. the dance class for people with Parkinson's disease, whether it's the woman who started running half marathons in her 60s, who identifies as fat and is not doing it to lose weight, but is doing it because she loves it. Um, The gym where people have, you know, serious physical disabilities, whether they're in wheelchairs or recovering from stroke, and they're boxing and strength training, Um, sort of whatever the idea is that I think a lot of people think I'm not talking about them because 
they have chronic pain or because uh, whatever the situation is. I really want to emphasize I'm talking about everybody, everybody, including people with serious physical and mental health challenges. And even though it may be that, um, you know, for example, there's a story about a woman dealing with the loss of her son in tremendous grief, which is just about of any condition you can imagine other than being in a coma. Grief is about the one thing that makes movement and experiencing joy through movement almost physiologically impossible because of Mm -hmm. the way that grief hijacks the brain and the body. And, uh, you know, her story was so powerful to me because of how exercising in nature and also finding the support of a running group really allowed her to, you know, using her language, embrace life again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there because that you asked about what are some of the barriers to getting started. And I found that a big one is people have been told this isn't for you, or we have our own fears, or our own experiences where we've been led to believe maybe this is not about me. And it is, it's about you and the body that you have and what you're capable of today. And there's a version of it that can bring you joy and hope and meaning, um, and community. So that's one of the barriers. And the other thing is that you said that I think is so important, which is to sort of throw out your ideas of what exercise has to look like. And if you think about in terms of movement, and I often define movement as using your body to engage with life. And if you think about, is there anything that you already love or like or enjoy that you want more of that you could do? by engaging with life through your body. So if you like being outdoors, if you've noticed that your mind quiets down or you feel more optimistic in nature, which is a very common psychological effect, could you hike, walk, swim, run, play sports, find a, you know, a park? Can you find a way to be outdoors, garden, you know, do some physical labor outdoors, do some restoration, do some volunteering? If you love music, music is one of the easiest ways to bring joy into movement while you're giving your brain time to catch up. It seems to take the the length of time I kept coming across in the neuroscience research was about six weeks. That seemed to take about six weeks for your brain to be like, this thing that I hate that's so uncomfortable and why am I doing it to, wow, this feels amazing and I'm so glad I did it. And if you tell me I can't do it tomorrow, I'm going to be cranky because this is something mm-hmm. that my body and brain needs. Right. So if you think it's going to take at least six weeks to get there, is there a playlist that is going to set off the endorphins and dopamine and adrenaline in your brain because you feel so empowered listening to it. It just brings that out of you, which music often does. That's going to allow you to be on the treadmill while your brain catches up to enjoying how it feels to exercise. Um, it doesn't have to be on the treadmill, but you know anything you can do to music. Is it spending time with your kids or with other people? Movement can often get us closer to things that are already intrinsically enjoyable and movement actually seems to amplify what is enjoyable about that, whether it's community, cooperation, mastery, nature. Um, you know, each chapter in the book sort of tackles one of those core human capacities for joy and what it looks mm-hmm. like in movement. Yeah, absolutely. The things that you're saying are making me think about other ways this has shown up for me. Um, so one example, I was at the pool last week and I live in Southern California and we had a couple days of really nice weather. And we were at the pool and my kids were begging me to come swimming with them. And normally I would sit on the sidelines and not only did I get in the pool with them because it was a way to be engaging in movement with these two little humans who I love so much, but my son wanted to throw 
you know, the things that sink in the pool and you dive after, which he doesn't know how to do. He can swim, but he can't dive down to the bottom of the deep end. And we we just played this ridiculous game of him throwing all these sinkables and me diving them and getting them. And he was having so much fun that I was willing to do that with him. And of course, it ended up being so much fun for me. And I was really tired at the end because I'm a middle-aged mom who doesn't usually do a lot of pool diving. Um, and that was something I think I've just started saying yes to more opportunities for movement. And the other thing this makes me think of is that if I'm exercising to exercise because I think I should, um, my mind tells me all the time, you should do more, you should do faster, you should do, um, you're only running and you need to be lifting weights. Like it's all rule governed, mm. right? And and I feel like reading the book has helped me to let go of those rules that aren't actually helpful and are really just inhibiting and to allow movement to be playful. I mean, there's the joy again, right? The joy oh, yeah. and the connection and some of these. Um, I mean, unless you're training for the about. Olympics, I don't, you know, I do not take that sort of physical training mindset where you have to do X, Y, and Z to maximize your physical performance or your physical appearance. That's just not how I think about movement. And so I think mm -hmm. once you get rid of this idea that you're looking for the thing that burns the most calories, or there's a recommendation that you need to stretch and strength train and do aerobic exercise and do calming movement. And oh my gosh, it's like, who has the time to do all of that? But if instead you think, exactly. how, how do I want to feel in the moment? And how do I want to feel about myself? And what relationships do I want to strengthen? Those are some really good questions to ask when you're thinking about what types of movement to prioritize. How do you want to feel when you're doing it? So for me, like the exercise that gives me the most positive feelings while I'm doing it is dancing. It, it's like an automatic route to joy, no matter how I feel when I start. How do you want to feel about yourself? You know, for me doing physically challenging things that where while I'm doing it, there's a voice in my head the whole time saying, uh, when is this over? Like core training. But afterwards, I know that that using my strength relieves my anxiety, that I feel brave and better able to face the world so that I might choose that sort of training. It's actually typically what I do first thing in the morning because I know it, it alters my personality to do some hardcore training um, or what relationships you want to strengthen. You know, you mentioned swimming with your son. And one of the things that you'd asked about fascinating scientific findings, one of my favorite scientific findings that showed up with really every form of movement is that when you um, exert yourself at a moderate level, you are releasing brain chemicals that make social connection more enjoyable and easier at every level. So eye contact is less threatening you know, with a stranger. Somebody's high five or hug will feel more pleasurable in your body play that, you know, sometimes it's hard to get into play, but when you're moving your body, suddenly play is more enjoyable and delightful. Cooperation mm -hmm. is more satisfying and it strengthens relationships so that afterward you feel really close and connected to the person that you moved with. So, you know, you're doing that with your son. We do that every time we exercise with anybody or, or not even exercise, but, but move or dance or do some sort of physical project together with somebody. You feel closer to them afterwards. And that can be a way to think about what movement do I want to choose is to think, what can I do with someone else? And the other thing I, I just want to point out, which I think is so critical, you know, so I know you know a lot about psychology. One of the things that I've always remembered is that if you want to strengthen a relationship, when someone makes an invitation to you about something that is sort of expressing who they are and what they care about, 
like just say yes to it. Allow yourself mm-hmm. to be somebody who affirms that and they feel seen by you and celebrated by you. Movement, this is a big one for people. If you have someone in your life who has subtly been nudging you to join them in an activity, maybe they just want you to see it. Like I can't tell you how many um, women, I teach a dance class with women in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. How many of them will bring their adult children to class, even just once? I think they want their kid to see who they are when they are dancing. Oh, that's so cool. And that is so cool. Um, I was talking to another um, interviewer who really wanted his father to come watch him surf. Even though his father could never surf, like he didn't have to surf, but he, he wanted his father like to see who he was when he was in the water on his surfboard. So if somebody in your life is making that sort of bid to you, play with me, come in the pool, mom, come to this yoga class I've been going to, come cheer me on in my 5K. This is such an amazing way to strengthen a relationship, to let go of your inhibitions, to make it a priority. Because when people are moving and and they're telling you this is a movement form that's meaningful to me, they're really telling you who they want to be, who they, when they're sort of the best version of themselves often, and they're inviting you to see that and celebrate it. Yeah, absolutely. I really liked um, going back to what you were saying about some of the research and the moving together. There was one finding that specifically looked at music, dancing with other people, and then specifically moving in synchrony. So like Mm -hmm. these group exercise classes that you do that showed that dancing in unison actually led the participants to feel even more bonded than those who danced together, but not in synchrony. And that the dancing in synchrony also increased their ability to tolerate pain. So this bonding and connection thing is just really incredibly powerful. It is. And there's so many different applications for this. So one thing I, I think of this as being sort of a big aha for me. Um, when I first started teaching, I, I was asked to develop a program for people with chronic pain. And I ended up spending over a decade working on this movement program that met twice a week. And for an hour, we moved and breathed together and stretched and did some strengthening. And people loved this class. I couldn't get people to stop taking this class, even if they were (laughs) recovered from their surgery or whatever. Um, And I remember thinking like, I don't know, we're not, it's not, this is not physical therapy. We're just moving and breathing. It took me years to figure out that what was probably happening is that we were moving and breathing together. And even if you are doing, you know, relatively gentle movements, like lift, lifting an arm on an inhale, lowering the arm as you exhale, when you sense that you're doing that as a collective with other people, it increases endorphins and, and probably other brain chemicals as well that relieve pain, not just in the short term, but are actually teaching the brain and the nervous system how to process physical sensation differently so that you experience less pain in general in life. And I, I, it took, I feel so silly that it took me years to realize it was probably the group effect and that we were moving slow enough to breathe together rather than like any brilliant stretch that I was coming up with. Um, so you can think <laughs> about synchrony as you know, a really powerful way for people who are dealing with difficult physical challenges that, um, that moving together is, is often more effective than moving on your own, you know, like learning your PT exercises and doing them at home. Um, that there's something powerful about the group effect. And that also translates to our ability to feel like we can handle the challenges in our lives. So there's also a hope effect. And part of that's endorphins, but it's probably other stuff as well. That when people move in synchrony with others, 
They report a greater sense of confidence in their ability to handle challenges. They report more hope that very difficult problems can be resolved. There's something about feeling this collective self that makes you feel like bigger and more open and more capable and more powerful. I think that's another really interesting side benefit. And so both of these are in addition to the fact that also they make you like other people more and feel a greater sense of belonging. Um, So it's one of the reasons why I continue to teach group movement classes. I teach one to two classes a day. And I think it's the most important work that I do. That's so cool. And it makes so much sense to me. I mean, when I had this aha moment about my kids and needing a, a parent who models movement, I set a goal for my... I was never a runner. I, I still don't know that I would consider myself a runner, but I set a goal for myself to run a 5K and I did the couch to 5K program and I signed up for a race that was actually on Mother's Day. Mm. And my husband and my two kids came and they cheered me on and they were there at the finish line. And I actually, um, I framed my bib and I keep it in my office as, and I've never done a race since then, by the way, (laughs) but it's this reminder to me that I never thought that this would be possible for me to do. And it was, it was such an accomplishment. And the other thing that really stuck out to me that was very surprising was when I went to the race that day, they did this whole humongous group warm up. And I didn't mm-hmm. know they do this at races where I don't know how many people were there, but it was a lot of people. And all of us were on this field together, essentially doing kind of like aerobics together to get warmed up for this race. And I i mean, it might be the most pumped up and the most <laughs> close to a bunch of strangers I've ever felt in my life and very different from running alone on my treadmill in my garage, which also also serves its purpose, but is a very different kind of emotional experience. And I feel like that high lasted for quite a long time. I mean, it is really a proud moment and I have such strong memories tied to it. And when I see the picture of me holding my kids after I finished the race, even now, you know, several years later, I'm just instantly filled with that the memory of, of, you know, just how amazing that experience was. And I think it had less to, if I had run a 5k by myself, it would have been a completely different experience. Yes. So I, I so really relate to that connection. This piece. is something I cannot emphasize enough to people who are trying to figure out how to make movement a part of their lives. We often think that the, the solution is going to be to find the smallest, most convenient thing we can do because it's easier to do in the moment today. Like I'm going to do the, I'm going to climb the stairs instead of take the elevator once. And we've been given a lot of what I think is poor advice when it comes to movement about trying to shrink the dose as small as possible, make it as convenient as possible. Just park your car a little bit farther away and you'll get like your activity in that way. And then maybe you can look at your step count at the end of the day and feel good that you got more steps in. And when, one of the things that I, I learned from talking to people and that I've seen over the years is that if you could just allow yourself to imagine that the movement you do could be really meaningful, people choose different activities, they do invest more time and energy into it, but often in a way that doesn't become a distraction from their lives, but allows them to create these kind of meaningful moments like you described with your kids in the finish line, that's different than if you were doing like, you can do a 5k on your treadmill by yourself at the gym. 
with nobody cheering you on and like no photograph to put on your wall. And I am always encouraging people to think, what if you believe this could be really meaningful? What if you believe this could be a metaphor about what you're capable of? What if the experience itself could bring joy or community into your life? What if the movement itself could do good for your community? I give examples in the book like Good Gym where they combine um, running or walking with community service projects or Green Gym where they're out there creating natural environments and city environments for other people to enjoy. There's a lot you can experience through movement that has real meaning to it. I think that is a much smarter way to approach it than the convenience factor which often seems logically like that's the way to begin. Right. And there may be benefit to doing those things. It's not that those things are bad or shouldn't be done, but you don't get the payoff. And you're you're less likely to stick with it. And when so much more is possible, you know, it almost reminds me of like people who are really excited about the fact that someday we might be able to never eat food and just take a pill. You know, there, if there's, I saw a funny study that, that said terrible. like half of humans would be happy to give up all relationship to food if it became possible to just take a pill once a day that replaced food. And I'm thinking, really? Because of the pleasure in food, because of the relationship mm-hmm. you can have to where your food comes from, to being able to make the food and share food and how we use food to communicate to other people that we love them. Like, what? You'd give all that up for a pill? Right. And I feel that way about movement too, that yeah, it's complicated. And we can have a very complex relationship with it, like you started um, our conversation saying. And also there's so much that's linked to our humanity tied into it. I actually believe that movement is one of the reasons I call the book, The Joy of Movement. And, and my publisher is not really thrilled that I talk about it this way, but I think of it like a trilogy, joy of sex, joy of cooking, joy of movement. Sex is key mm-hmm. to how humans survive, and it's really uh, it's, it can be a source of pleasure, meaning, and connection. So is food and cooking. It is abs- you have to eat to survive, and also it's a source of joy and pleasure and meaning and connection. And I think movement is the it's the trifecta. It's the other thing that is necessary yeah. to survive, and is just as richly embedded in what it means to be human. Yeah, I think you're so right, and you do talk a lot too about. Um, kind of the evolutionary, having an evolutionary understanding of why movement actually is incredibly rewarding. And, you know, the runner's high, which actually turns out to be more of a persistence high, right, that people mm-hmm. can get with any type of prolonged movement. Yeah, as somebody who doesn't run, I appreciate the fact that you don't need to run <laughs> to get the high. Right, exactly. Yes, yes, that you can get it from any kind of persistent movement, because not everyone is a runner. Yeah. Or even continuous is another good way to describe it because you can get it in flow yoga or Tai Chi or swimming or dancing, anything where you're just, you just keep moving. Yeah. And that we, we really are built to move and we have internal processes that make continuing to move reinforcing, like we're meant to do it. We just have to break free from some of these old complicated negative messages and find the joy and connection. Yeah. And, and, this, and is, that. this is part of the understanding that your brain is adapted to reward you for the things that help us survive as individuals and that help us survive as communities. So, mm-hmm. you know, in my, in my previous work, you mentioned that I work on compassion and empathy. Part of compassion is we actually get a high from being able to help others and feeling like we've made a difference. And that looks a lot like an exercise high, by the way. And it looks a lot like, um, you know, the high that we get when we've done, we've been working on something really difficult and we succeed for the first time, that our, the human brain 
rewards us for doing things that are really important to our survival individually and collectively. And movement is one of them. And uh, I like to put sort of the, the exercise high in that same category as the warm glow of compassion or the helper's high or the, the thrill of triumph and overcoming obstacles. There are a lot of things that we just intrinsically like, oh, yes, like our brain celebrates us when we do them. And movement mm-hmm. is one of them. Right. Makes us feel more alive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you tell so many wonderful stories about the people that you interviewed for the book. And I think one of my favorites, and I think she's the same person that you mentioned about how she didn't start running half marathons until her 60s. Nora Hayfully. That was Nora. Yes. Yes. I love her so much. (laughs) Oh my gosh. She found running later in her life. And she talked about how she would almost always, or sometimes anyway, she would often finish last, but really took pride in her perseverance. And, you know, a lot of our listeners and myself included, um, do acceptance and commitment therapy with our clients and in our own lives. And one of the tenets of acceptance and commitment therapy is that it's more important to focus on values and process and steps and choices rather than on outcomes that aren't always within our control. And I thought this was such a good example of that, that when you're focused on persistence and overcoming obstacles, um, that it, it, it helps you to persevere and continue and to not give up versus focusing on winning, for example. Yeah. Well, though, do you uh, love that story where there was such a dramatic storm during one race, of her half marathons yeah. that she got she got first because everyone else dropped out? Um, that first in her age group because everyone else dropped out, even though she was the last person to cross the finish line. But everyone else her age was like, there is no way that I can run a half marathon in this kind of crazy weather. Um, yes, that, that was, was my I absolute favorite part of the whole story is like her persistence ended up really paying off. So, so here's just some highlights for people who haven't read the book about why you and I love this woman so much. Um, one is that she did start later in life. Um, she told me this very moving story about how she grew up before Title IX, which um, requires schools to offer athletic opportunities to women as well as men. And she grew up thinking that because she was a girl, sports weren't for her, races weren't for her. And she also um, has been fat for, Mm. I think, most of her life. And she thought that she wasn't allowed to do movement. That like, you know, movement, as I've heard from so many people, movement is what you do to erase your fat and and maybe like do it in secret before uh, you've actually lost the weight and then you're allowed to be a part of the movement community. So she had all these stories that lots of people have. Mm -hmm. And she realized through direct participation that it was for her starting with walking and then moving up to a 5K and then moving up to these half marathons. And now she's done I like a hundred by now. Every time I kept fact checking, it was more than in the past. In the and book, she, you said over 200 events, I think in less yeah. than 10 years. And almost, yeah. I think like a hundred, I think at the time I wrote it, it was 75 half marathons and it just kept <sighs> increasing every time I checked with her. And, you know, she did mention that she often finishes last. And one thing she said was that she doesn't mind because for two reasons. One, she's happy to do it so somebody else doesn't have to finish last, which I think is, you know, you talked about feeling connected to your values. And like, that's just, it's such a simple idea, but what a, like a kind connected to common humanity idea that like, she doesn't mind it. And she knows when she finishes last that she's held the space for every other person who right. might not have her own capacity for self-compassion to not have oh, finished. So and also she mentioned 
that people cheer the person who comes in last harder than anybody else. <laughs> like, it's like, so that's true. The story that you have that you'll be rejected and you're a failure if you come in last, even in by paying attention to her direct experience, it's actually the opposite um, that yeah. people will celebrate you. So there's anyway, there's so much in her story and how she she will often try to do an event with other people who are thinking about like doing their first 5k, how she encourages them and, and tries to do it with them. So they will feel like they belong and aren't alone. I, you know, and that she's a recovering alcoholic and wanted to include that in her story because it's part of how she stays sober. And she talks about it as her drug of choice. I mean, there's so much in her story that highlights so many elements of, you know, every story that I was looking for was a story that for me, didn't just reveal what was good about exercise or movement. I, every story that I shared, I thought also revealed what was good about human nature. And, yeah. and I wanted the book to make people feel a certain way, which is that humanity is uh, like, don't despair <laughs> about human nature, that there's a lot of, of beautiful things about human beings and who they are and how they show up in the world. And I think the book absolutely 100% achieves that. And I think you said it maybe in the introduction, how after each of these interviews you would have, you would just think to yourself, oh, I love people. Oh my gosh. Almost every single one. If my husband was home, I would come out and I'd be like, like to my husband, you, you, they said the most incredible thing. I, I (laughs) I have like, I play you back this interview um, because you know, I mentioned when people invite you to to move with them, often they're showing you the best version of themselves in a way you might not expect. And I found that more than any other book I've written, that people, when they were telling me their stories about just why they love swimming or why they love dance classes or why they love rowing, they were telling me about who they were in a really deep and meaningful and beautiful way that that somehow managed to illustrate both who they were as an individual and and what people are capable of. And that's why I would end these interviews sometimes like, you know, all teary and be like, I, I just love this person so much. <laughs> I fell in love with all my, uh, the people in my book. Yeah, I did too. And I mean, Nora was one of my favorites. Your grandparents are definitely probably tied for favorite. And that was, I think when I got teary was reading your grandparents' story. Yeah. You oh. know, they're, they're a great love story in my family. Mm-hmm. I always, it's the how my grandfather took care of my grandmother to the end of her life. And the story in the book is about how they met. They met at a dance. Um, my, my grandfather had just returned from World War II. And my, my grandmother was, uh, you know, someone who went to the dance halls to meet the returning soldiers. And um, they fell in love, you know, at first dance to a, uh, the Irving Berlin song always, which is about how I'll love you always for the rest of your life. And anyways, there's a lot more to that story uh, about the role of music and dance in, um, in helping my grandparents over time. But yeah, yeah I feel like that. Um, it's a good one. It got me in the feels <laughs> and it seems like that's where your, your love of dance might have first been stimulated. <laughs> yeah. Right. Hey, and, and thank goodness my grandfather loved to dance because he was supposed to become a priest. So, you know, oh wow. Praise be Lucky. that he decided right. to dance instead of becoming a priest or I would not exist. We would never have this book. So, you know, you talk to so many people who had these, you know, inspiring and triumphant stories about finding the joy of movement. 
And I assume those are the kinds of interviews that you were looking for. So this this question may not may not make sense, but I was curious if you interviewed anyone who's really struggled to incorporate movement and if there's anything that we can learn from that or like are the people who find and maintain a movement practice and find joy in movement, are they different from those no, who don't? And like actually, how we can transform people? Great question. They're like all the same stories. I just didn't spend a lot of time on like the the before rather than the after. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about so almost everyone who's in the in the book, there would have been another version about how depression made them think that they they couldn't begin or um how uh, I think of one person in particular who had incredible body image issues and that that her, it was when she started doing martial arts training that a lot of that changed and then, you know, sort of a gateway into other forms of movement. But I think, you know, everyone I talked to had their own version of that. I have my own challenges with movement as somebody who um, had lived with chronic pain. And actually it's, it's one of these funny things is movement actually used to be a trigger for my pain. And now it's like the thing that actually is most likely to relieve my pain, but it took a while for my nervous system to figure that out. It's, it's actually, it's incredible to me to think about it, that it was, a you know, getting my heart rate up used to reliably be one of the, the easiest ways to trigger systemic pain for me. And now it, it's the opposite. Um, and I feel like that was the case with a lot of the people that I talked to, they all struggled. Um, I mean, in extreme version, you know, Bernie Salazar, we've talked about the, the guy who has dance parties with his little girl in Target, he mm-hmm. actually was um, the winner of The Biggest Loser. He was one of the winners of The Biggest Loser. And oh, no he way. had to repair a massively destructive relationship with movement that was induced by that show. Wow. And, you know, he spent quite a bit of time trying to maintain extreme weight loss um, with exercise that was basically punishment. And it took him, it took him, um, years to recover and find a form of movement that was about joy and strength and enjoying himself and not about punishing himself for having eaten, you know? So, yeah. So I don't think it's that people are different. And I think that we all have our challenges. Movement is complicated and our culture is complicated. And, uh, I would say that the thing that the, the common theme in all the stories, like including, I think about the woman who started to go to exercise classes after she was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and what a challenge that was. But she had to find the place where music was the thing that drove the experience and the, the music gave her way to experience her body differently and even have maybe a different relationship to the progression of the disease um, is finding the thing that brings out in you either what you want to feel or how you want to feel about yourself. Right. That's the pivot point. Yeah. 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 Well, I think another way to overcome any obstacles to movement is certainly to read this book. I mean, <laughs> it's really, I really mean that. And, and, you know, it's a love letter, not only to movement, but to music, to human connection, to, to nature, connection to the outdoors. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, had almost forgotten how much I love music and what a positive influence it has on mood and having nothing to do with movement. I now play music every morning in our kitchen and my children have started doing that. If I don't do it, they come down and, you know, tell Alexa to play music. (laughs) And then of course that means everybody ends up spontaneously dancing. I think, I think you said in the book, musicologists call that 
groove. Groove, yes. It's the instinct yeah. to move to a beat. And it's, it is hardwired. Babies show it before like anything else, even before they can crawl. Like literally just out of the womb, babies will start trying to synchronize. You can try it. If you have a baby, try this out. You know, that everyone wants to move to the beat of music. So I do think that if, if people listening want to get started, find a song you love, put it on, see if there is anyone in your house, animal or human, who's willing to move with you. I mean, that's just, it's a perfect way to begin. It really is. And I've also found on Spotify, and there may be other apps that do this too. um, My friend Frank actually showed me how to do this, that you can search playlists at a certain beat per minute. Mm -hmm. So if, so I know how fast I run and I can find like 142 beat per minute playlist. And then I have all this really peppy music that's the exact tempo for me to do my most joyful jogging. I'll call it jogging. It's not really running. <laughs> my most joyful jogging. Um, and that's made movement that much more enjoyable for me, for me as well. So I think, you know, that there is, I think there's there's a whole chapter just devoted to music. Oh, yeah. And I actually uh, created playlists based on that science and also the conversations I had with people. Um, one of my playlists on Spotify is songs people want to dance to. And I asked people for Like if the song came on, it would make them absolutely want to get up and move. And also I said like, and the song that you think maybe would appeal to a broad range of of other people as well, ages and backgrounds. And it's a really fun playlist. It's called Songs People Want to Dance To. If you look that up on Spotify, you will probably find it. Um, Or you can look up my name on Spotify. And I have all sorts of playlists um, related to the book. Um, so. Oh, that I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Fun fact. That's like a little Easter egg. I am so excited to check that out. That's so great. Um, well, thank you, Kelly. It's been such a joy having you here. And thank you for giving us this gift of a book. I've been telling everybody about it. Um, and no doubt from now on, when I see you, I will experience a cooperation high, which is another <laughs> thing you talk about in the book after this just super rich conversation. I, I really appreciate it. And I hope that our listeners read the book and have the joy and the feels and everything else as they read it and that it inspires them to find the joy of movement as well. So thank you so much for being here. And thank where you. can our where can our listeners find you? And we'll put we'll put these in the show notes. Yeah, I think either just look me up, kellymcgonagall.com or on all the social medias, Kelly McGonagall, or just look up the joy of movement and you will definitely find me. Okay, we will do that. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please help us out by writing a review on iTunes. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. We're at offtheclockpsych.com.